Hello everybody, welcome to this edition of the ianabernethy.com podcast. So in this podcast I'm having a talk with Dan Trelescu. Uh, Dan's an Aikido practitioner, he's also a practitioner and teacher of reality-based self-defense under Rory Miller. Really interesting guy, I've always really enjoyed my private conversations with Dan. Uh, he lived in the UK for a bit so we met up at a few seminars and had the opportunity to talk during and after. Uh, he's also helped me out at some seminars in Germany where he's acted as uh, as my Yuki. Uh, really interesting guy with some fascinating insights so I know you're going to really enjoy this podcast. So without further ado I'll hand you over to myself and Dan as we talk about uh, all things Aikido. Hello everybody, well I'm here with Dan of uh, Harm and Harmony, so I'm going to let Dan introduce himself, but the, the, the agenda for today is going to talk a little bit about Aikido, uh, some of the, the, the issues around Aikido, some of the problems it has and how they relate to other traditional martial arts in, including karate, so thank you very much for, for joining us Dan. Hi Ian, good to be here. So you... I'll talk a little bit about myself, my background, so I've been doing Aikido for 15 years, I started at university like many people do. Um, for the last 10 years, I've also been practicing with Rory Miller and Violence Dynamics, so more reality-based self-defense. I have about five years of kickboxing and um, dabbled in a whole bunch of other martial arts because I just enjoy them a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm one of the instructors for conflict communications, and I have a, a master's degree in counseling studies, which sort of ties into that a little bit. Um, and yeah, I used to run a dojo in Cyprus teaching Aikido and self-defense, and trained a little bit with Ian, which is how I ended up here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, a few times in the UK and a couple of times in Germany. You've you've been kind enough to be my um, uki on a few of the seminars that we've done. So so maybe maybe just we'll, we'll start at the, the beginning then. So um, if you talk about your, your early experiences of Aikido, did, did, did you always find it to be a functional system? Cause, or, or did you, from the, did you recognize there were maybe some issues with the way you were training? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, when I started, I, I think I didn't know enough to answer that question. So I, I just sort of, I did it and this was what we did. So naturally, I assumed that this was functional, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, for those who maybe don't have a lot of experience with Aikido, the, the system is mostly throws and joint locks the way that it's done now. Um, and it's quite abstract. So it teaches sort of high level principles, but the training method doesn't look a lot like what the fight or conflict would look like. So when you're starting out, you sometimes you assume that that's what actually happens. Um, but I, I started doing the kickboxing quite early on, about six months after I started Aikido, um, and they didn't really cross wires, you know, they were just separate things I did. But I started to notice that, you know, it, I, I couldn't quite pull off things in sparring if we had throws and stuff that maybe I could do in the training methods. And I started to look around a little bit at um, some of the texts that were out there talking about reality-based self-defense and real violence. Uh, Jeff Thompson is one of the early people I looked at, Lauren Christensen, you know, um, later Rory Miller. And I noticed that there were some things in the training that, um, it's not that they were wrong, but the way that they were explained to me were maybe not the way that it actually worked. Mm. You know, um, plus uh, when I started, due to circumstances, our club had a very high instructor turnover because it was a university club and people moved away and people moved back there. And so I had, I think, uh, four or five different instructors in the first five years I trained. Um, so I didn't never really had what some people have where they get very invested in one particular style. You know, I just, I had to learn different styles and I tried to find the commonalities and some of the things between them that, because I figured if you know, four out of five styles do one thing one way, there's probably a reason. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then I, I started reading some of these things and I started experimenting a little bit and playing with it a little bit and, you know, wondering about where does this actually fit in? Because clearly self-defense is a much bigger thing than any style, but how does how does what we do fit into that? Um, and then a bit later, you know, I, I, was, I had moved to Cyprus for work and I had... Um, I had been training at this dojo and then the instructor retired, so I ended up taking over. And I noticed that, you know, um, I had a very specific moment. I had, uh, we're practicing a, like an arm drag takedown that we do quite commonly. 
and one of my students was a 13-year-old girl. And I'm looking at the practice and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so wait a second. She's practicing with a large guy and I'm teaching her that if this guy attacks her, she's supposed to take him down and sit on him. <laughs> this, this Somehow this doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, immediately we started saying, okay, so maybe let's change that for now and let's do that. You do the first half of that and then you run through that door. Let's practice escape, you know. And so we started working think more things like that in, and I think that's how I started to contextualize it a little bit. Yeah, that's, 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 again, straight away, I recognize a lot of that through my own experience with with karate. The one I immediately think about is this idea of, of things getting disconnected from their purpose, and then they develop a purpose all of their own. You know, so it's like you, you're talking about, you know, these high-level methods, and, and, and it, almost like the aesthetic and the joy of the movement comes in. Well, there's a parallel there with karate kata. You know, the kata originally had a functional purpose. It gets disconnected from that purpose, and it develops its own set of purposes. You know, it, it then becomes something that you... It, it, it's its own objective. You do kata to get good at kata. And, and, and I find it interesting as well, because this has been my experience of Aikido, and obviously I'm, I'm talking as an outsider, but um, I, I've definitely seen a lot of ineffective Aikido, uh, and I have seen effective Aikido, but the effective Aikido I've seen is generally from people who have experience in other systems as well, which has enabled them to contextualize it a little better. So, so would you say the cross-training has helped your, your, your own take on it? Um, for me personally, yes. I, I know that, um, so my instructor in particular has a slightly different take on that. And is, um, I, I think cross-training helped me once I found something to integrate it. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was training with Rory Miller and doing the sort of his method, his self-defense stuff and the violence dynamics things and having educating myself very thoroughly on what self-defense actually looked like, what training that is like, you know, learning that, teaching that. Um, now everything I do kind of feeds into that. So all the cross training feeds into that. I think just doing multiple things doesn't necessarily help because the mindset and the body mechanics and the purposes don't necessarily integrate that well. I mean, for a common example, Aikido, um, if, I, if I use your martial map for a second, which I really like, by the way, um, Aikido is really not suitable for consensual fighting. The training method isn't suitable for it. The techniques that have survived within it are not ones that are particularly useful for that purpose, uh, which is why you don't tend to see it in competitive fighting very much. Mm. It's, it's just not, it's not, you know, some... People say, oh, it's too deadly for it. No, it's not. <laughs> it's just the, the training methods are not suitable for that. You do not develop the necessary skills by doing Aikido alone. Now, you can do other arts um, to supplement that, but unless you have something that integrates all of your training into one, it's going to be a little bit like trying to put together a car out of random parts from other cars. Hmm. You, know, you need to understand what you're doing and you need to have a purpose in mind for what you want that thing to look like. You know, if you want to fight, because you, you, you do see techniques from Aikido pop up in MMA fairly regularly, but other arts also have these techniques. It's not like that means, oh, Aikido is an MMA. It means you, you see those techniques and you could probably, it, it's like when, um, um, was it Lyoto Mashida who was very successful in the cage with Shotokan Karate? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people started saying, oh, Shotokan works in the cage. It's like, well, yes, the way he trains it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, no, yeah, that that's one hundred percent. People do have a bad habit of doing that. They'll, they'll point to uh, people who are training in a different way to them, but nevertheless share the same origins as them. So that's that's probably a, a good point because we, we ahead of time we we talked about some of the things we'd like to to talk about. So um, maybe we can look into some of the the criticisms and and then the misconceptions uh, around Aikido then. Uh, that, that, that you've experienced as someone who's as, as an insider, but has also got that external view through your training with other systems. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the first thing that I really have to say is that a lot of the criticisms are generally valid. Mm. Um, but I think it's, I think the problem is that because the training method is usually with a cooperative partner um, and that has value and that, that comes partially from old school Japanese um, martial arts, so the, the older arts, the choreo arts, quite often do most of their training through two-person kata. And those are highly choreographed two-person kata, usually quite brutal, usually quite dangerous. And that has evolved a little bit, and different arts have evolved that into different things. So judo has evolved their, you know, their competitive randori. 
which is fantastic training method. Um, Aikido has evolved into having the high-level ukemi skills, which you rarely find in uh, the older arts, but uh, find in judo. So Aikido has those. But the training method is not competitive. It is sort of cooperative partner practice. Now, that has its uses, and there are certain things you can do with this. For example, I don't know many other arts that actually do power generation when they do joint locks. Um, we can do that because we can expect our partner to jump. Mm. But uh, obviously that also has drawbacks because there are certain skills you just don't get that way. And and sort of this is where a lot of the criticisms come from. It allows bad training to persist. You know, if you're bad at judo, when your club goes to competitions, you're going to notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're training in an Aikido style that is sort of the Aikido equivalent of you, what you might call 3K karate, you know, just something that is not particularly applicable, chances are you can, you can really not notice for a very long time. You know, and you get a lot of criticism from people who've experienced that, who've been in one of those styles, who were told that what they were doing was, you know, this amazing samurai warrior art, and then, you know, they had some kind of encounter where that didn't work, and um, they're very disillusioned with it. And with, with Aikido, it's one of those arts where really technical differences do matter. So I think that there are absolutely valid criticisms that there's not enough live training. Um, there's quite often th things are very abstract. And part of the reason is because at some point in Aikido's history, most of the people who trained in it already had a background in another martial art. Hmm. So there were a number of things that were assumed knowledge. You know, the same way that um, basic grappling would have been assumed knowledge in Okinawan karate because everyone did some form of sumo or similar yeah. wrestling style. Yeah. It's the same thing. People were assumed to know, at least know what a fight looked like, if not have some fighting skills. So the training method doesn't tend to create a base of fighting skill. It gives you some interesting things to put on top of that base if it's already there or if you're training it, uh, you know, if, if your club does train it. But it doesn't create it by itself. And a lot of the criticisms come from that. Um, there's some of them that are, I think, they're valid to a degree but need to be contextualized. I think people using MMA or the UFC as an example of, you know, why it doesn't work. It's like, yes, it doesn't work for that context. You know, that's not quite the same as it, it not working for personal protection or for self-defense. Um, because as I said, it's just not really suitable for that context. So I think sometimes people get too invested because you see MMA so much on TV, right? People assume that that's what an actual fight looks like. Yeah, no, that's definitely a, a, an ongoing um, problem. Uh, my own view of, like, I think MMA has done a lot generally positively for the martial arts because Absolutely. it is a very legitimate form of live testing. But nevertheless, it is it is live testing within the framework of what works for consensual violence. So, I mean, and there are some things that are fairly obvious. Things, like, you know, you... If you've got a gap in self-defense, you don't close that gap. You seek to increase it. Your, your objective is, is to escape. If you knock a guy down, you don't jump on him and, and continue to punch him. That's not to say MMA isn't effective. And the skills developed in MMA can't be contextualized for self-protection. But you've always got to play to the goal. I always like it. Like if someone's good at rugby, it doesn't mean they're good at American football simply because there's a crossover. If they walk on to play American football and use rugby rules, they're not going to do particularly well. Despite the fact is those, those, those skills. So in, in, with that, because one of the things I find as well is that um, I'm a great believer in life uh, testing and life practice, but but that needs to be contextualised too. So it needs to reflect the objective. And I think sometimes people go, oh, you know, you have to do combat sports because they are the only form of life testing. Well, the life testing in combat sports is for combat sports. You can recreate self-defense based scenarios and fulfill those objectives within training so within the aikido do you, do you have elements of live practice semi-live practice within that self-protection framework well so yes and no i think that most of mainstream aikido doesn't do it very much there, there is some um there is a what we call randori which is a, a multiple opponent practice but it doesn't look anything like judo randori really which tests some parts of that um there is some freestyle practice, um, but most of where that comes from in my practice is where I've taken it from the self-defense world and put it into the Aikido. You know, mm. I mean, we, we don't just life test the physical. We also do life tests of boundary setting and things like this, which, you know, I teach self-defense seminars sometimes. This is actually what people have more problems with. Like I've rarely 
had someone have a problem with punching someone for more than five minutes, you know, we've had people who really struggle to loudly shout no in training, right? <laughs> See, yeah, and that's, yeah, exactly. See, that's the point. You know, if you do live drills, like where you tap gloves and square off and go, you're missing a large part of the self-protection framework, you see. So, so, so what you're saying there is, just to summarise, if I'm, if I'm obviously not doing this correctly, let me know. But um, I think I think it's fair to say, and with karate as well, there's a growing pragmatic community who do do live practice within the framework of self-protection. But it would be fair to say it's not a majority practice. Uh, and would that hold true for Aikido then? So it's not something that a lot of people do, but there are some that do it. Yes, absolutely. I yeah. think that's correct. Um, I think that there's, I mean, and this is mostly based on like, what you see on the internet is not always a great representation, mm-hmm. as you know, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that where some parts of the Aikido community struggle with introducing it is because, like you said, combat sports are really great for this. And I, I, I love MMA and things like this. I think they're wonderful, wonderful arts. Um, but I think what where people in the Aikido community struggle is that that is the primary source of live drills that you find. Right? And so you get things like you get videos where people are like, okay, today we're going to test this in the clinch, you know, and they throw their students into trying to do Aikido moves in that environment with full resistance without actually having gone through the process of developing the peripheral skills that you need to do that. You know, if, if you want to do techniques in the clinch you can't just be in a clinch you need to actually have the skills to operate within that before you ever get to aikido you know um just as an example i mean these things take some time to develop by themselves and i think um you, you do need to like you said have these drills be specific to teach certain skills i think one of a word i really dislike is pressure testing mm-hmm. like i think i i, I a lot of people use it correctly in the right context, and I think that's wonderful, but it just gets misused so much. Um, from a conversation with my friend uh, Randy King, who's also a self-defense instructor in Canada, um, we, you know, we came up with the term pressure training instead, because it's, people think that, okay, so we're going to throw this into the live drill, and then at the end of it, we know whether it works or not, and it's like, well, instead, why don't you do live training to develop skills to operate under that environment and under that pressure? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's different it, things, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. The analogy of the it's like teaching swimming. So we're going to do some pressure testing. We're going to throw you in the water. Whoops, you drown. Swimming doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. So you would acknowledge, you no, know, we've got to build up those skills, you know. So, so uh, one one thing there as well. I noticed you said you you um, you need those skills to apply the aikido. So, do do you see those skills as being part of aikido, or are they something you would acquire from somewhere else? Well, that is uh, the subject of much debate on the internet, of course. Uh, people have very different opinions. So my, my view is, I mean, there are two um, kind of quotes by Aikido teachers that really drive how I do my training. So the first is that um, Alan Rudok, who was the founder of the organization that I'm in, he, he died a few years ago, but um, he, he brought Aikido to Ireland, among other things. Um, and he trained with the founder in the 60s in Japan. And when he left Japan, he was told, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, you know, you have to remember that all these things like wearing a gi and sitting and says I'm bowing, they're part of Japanese culture. They're not part of Aikido. Mm. You need to, you know better how to teach Westerners than we do. You need to teach it in a way that works for you and your students. So I've always taken that to heart a lot. So, you know, whether something is what I see in Aikido textbooks or what, a teacher of mine did or you know what a high-ranking instructor demonstrates doesn't necessarily define the boundaries for me it's about the principles being there and the the other thing is that um, a few years ago the current head of the largest Aikido organization of the Aikikai is the grandson of the founder of Aikido um, he said in an interview that he personally does not focus on martial applications and self-defense and most Aikidoka don't, so that's another thing you need to contextualize the criticisms is quite often people are being criticized for something they actually have no interest in. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but he said that if somebody were to want to do that, that would be perfectly okay with an Aikido. And my take is, well, if it's okay for me to do that, it's also okay for me to do within Aikido the things that I need to make that work. 
you know, it's not enough to do your techniques more forcefully, to do the same techniques with the same methods more forcefully and with a expression of more intense constipation, you know, <laughs> as some people do and then say, oh, this is now practical martial arts. You have to actually bring these this training and these skills in. And um, I think like you said with ground fighting, you know, these are not things that need to be developed to a very high level necessarily. You can get a lot of it just from doing the drills. You will develop the skills. And there's also so much stuff out there where you can get good skills. If you want good clinching skills, all you need to do is look at some basic wrestling. You know, a few weeks of pummeling training will do absolute wonders. No, I would, I would agree with that. that, that, that these, it's that uh, em empirical learning is what a friend of mine calls it as well. And, and I, I, I have the same thing with with the karate. It's an interesting. It's a it's a label that got attached to a disparate gr group of practices. So you have Chinese influences, Okinawan influences. They lump it all together and they put a label on it called karate. Mm. And then it's evolved and changed throughout time. It's changed culturally. Um, things have been added and things have been moved. The one I always point to is a roundhouse kick. If you ask most people, name a karate kick, they'll go the roundhouse kick. Well, it wasn't there in the 1930s. It was not in any of the books. You know, it, it, it's, it's been brought in and, and now it's part of it. So at what point when we bring these things in, um, do they become part of the art? So I, I've had that, like you say, we, we do have... Um, cross-trained in judo, developed some uh, groundwork skills. Uh, one of a couple of my karate instructors has also trained and, and developed groundwork skills. I bring the skills that are relevant to our objectives, not the skills needed to out wrestle wrestlers or anything like that, or submit grapplers because they're not they're not our objective. But the basic core self-protection skills that you need, and that becomes part of our karate. So you know, so some people they'll see it go, oh, oh you're doing judo. Well, I, th I don't really think of it as judo anymore. It's now part of my karate in the same way. The roundhouse kickers became part of karate. It's it's forever forever shifting, and I sometimes think the labels can be problematic if they become limiting definitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, d d yeah, a lot of a lot of parallels in that one. One thing I just want to want to because we mentioned it in passing, but it, it, it's something you and I have talked about before. But it's this. Um, the, the idea that criticisms, and I can say this is the same as, as karate too, a lot of the criticisms that it receives are wholly valid depending on what it is you're criticizing. So, so I, 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 there's things within karate that I'm critical of, and there's, there's definitely things that we do. So one of the ones that, as an outsider, I would look at Aikido and say this, this jumping into techniques all the time. But you just made the point there, and I thought it was a really good one, is that when most people practice joint locks, what they'll do is they'll take it to the point where it bites and they'll let it off, or the partner will tap. Whereas what you're saying is you guys are practicing the power generation in it, so you're slamming right through that lock, and therefore the only way you can safely practice that is the guy needs to leap to get ahead of it. So he's, not, he's leaping as a, a, a training method to allow you to apply the, jocks with, the, 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 uh, the locks with power, but in application the guy isn't going to leap like that, that joint is just going to go pop. Would that be a fair assumption of that form of practice? Um, it's a part of it. So I think that, again, it's everything is in context. That is one of the things you can use this form of practice for, right? And you have to be, in that case, careful to also do other forms of practice where the person doesn't leap because otherwise you assume that's what will happen, right? But in general, partnering skills are a huge part of Aikido, and there's lots of different ways to do those. You know, you can do it with more resistance. You can do it more solidly. Um, a lot of the time what good partnering feels like is, or what is considered good partnering within most of Aikido is like a good follower in dance, mm. you know, um, and that's the, the, I think the safety aspect is one part of it and it does let you do something. So for example, there's a throw um, that I learned from one of my teachers where you commonly take the person over backwards, but the way that he does it, you also twist the neck to one side. The response to this is to turn your body the other way and flip, which is not something that you would naturally do. But if you don't do that, it's not safe to receive that technique. Mm. But the training method is also, again, if we assume that people already have a fighting base and they don't need to be taught what a fight looks like, this training method lets you develop very high-level skills at moving with a partner like that. And if you look at videos of really good Aikido instructors online, you know, what is considered sort of good in, in most of Aikido, they have superb skills at moving with a cooperative partner. I mean, they can do things that are absolutely amazing. A lot of the time, if you look at those videos carefully, you'll see that the partner is doing a lot of the work, right? Those partnering skills are mm. also high level. And it, it creates this wonderful movement art. Um, 
it should not be the only way that you practice though. And I think, like you said, everything has to be within context. I think a lot of the criticism is people look at it and they go, well, someone would never fall like that in real life. It's like, yes, <laughs> we know you do what someone does in real life. You can't do that a hundred times a night, you know? Yeah. No, that, that, that's really, that, again, that, that remind, I call it the training matrix that we, we acknowledge that every single form of practice is flawed, deliberate flaws to make sure that it's safe. And then what you need is you need a series of complementary practices where the faults in one are corrected by the drill in another. So the example I give is when we spar, um, we will generally use a light contact to the head because the science on that is now very clear. It's a bad idea to punch people in the head. So, so you develop the skill of getting the fist to the target through the partner work. Now, the bit that's lacking there is you're not driving through the target. So we go onto the pads for that. But of course, the pad is the pad. It's not a person. But you, you put all of this together, all those training methods, and you've got the skill to get the hand to the target, and you've got the skill to do damage when it's there. Uh, and, and I think if you only focus on one form of training and become blind to the faults in that form of training, where you're not correcting them with other forms, that's when the problem exists. Um, so is that something you guys see when it comes to that joint locking then? As you're saying, you'll, you'll, they'll do the, the flipping, but the forms of practice when they're looking at possibly more realistic forms of responses, uh, is that widely practiced or do you feel that's an area where Aikido needs to improve? Uh, I think it depends very heavily on the style. I think yeah. I mean, different styles of Aikido have very different teaching progressions. Um, some of them will start with more solid partnering. Some of them will start with more flowy. Some of them will start almost choreographed. Um, with the last one I'm not a fan of, but some <laughs> do it that way. Um, so I, th I think it could be more widely practiced. And one of the things I used to do at, at the dojo was that um, if a new person showed up, for the first two weeks or so, I wouldn't teach them the correct responses. You know, we tell people to be careful with each other, but just so that people who are already there could experience what it felt like to have an untrained person react yeah. to body manipulations and things like this, because it feels very different. And it's important to... Um, I, I, which actually this reminds me this brings me to something um, really important one of the crucial skills in Aikido is being able to read your partner's body you know the sort of proprioception is hugely important and one of the problems with the super corporate training or even worse sort of prescribed responses is that you do not develop that skill mm. you can only develop that skill if you actually have to react to how your partner moves which is a core part of the principles of Aikido you know, a lot of the joint locks, I mean, one of the other criticisms is that joint locks um, are complicated. They're hard to make work, you know, and therefore they're not particularly realistic. And, well, we, we don't actually have that many of them. Um, I mean, I say it's mainly a joint locking art, but we really only have about four or five wrist locks, for example. But the thing is, they're not that complicated. The only thing is that they the conditions for them have to be in place. You don't just try to, especially if you're at something like sparring distance, try to grab your partner's arm and make a lock happen the way that we do it. It happens organically as you're fighting, usually in very close distance, and they've already positioned their hand or their arm in a way where you only have to add the last 20% of the technique. You know, a hook punch is a very good setup for a number of arm locks. You just have to not get hit and do the last 20%. They're doing 80% of the work for you. But these are skills that you cannot develop if you only practice with prescribed attacks from out of distance. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. Hmm. No, I see that. I mean, obviously, from the karate perspective, the, the, the lockings, um, I always use a phrase, it's accidental or incidental. Because effectively, we're looking as, as, a, as a way to get to the hit. Karate being primarily a percussive system. But, but, but um, so we, we don't take, you know, our joint locking isn't in the same league as Aikido joint locking. But the, the same concept idea applies that we, we, you, you don't force it. It's there and you take it. It's accidental or incidental, you know. So we're not saying, oh, I want this technique, I will force this technique. You, the technique is given to you and you take it. Um, so there is that reaction element as well, I think. And again, I think sometimes that lack of live practice it, it does become problematic because people don't develop those those skills. And also with flow drills is another one. I, I do like flow drills. I think flow drills can be useful. But as you were saying there, part of the danger with them is if, if they're isolated from that wider training matrix, you come to rely on the flow. I know what my partner's going to do three moves ahead and I'm ready mm -hmm. for that. Now, when they move in an unexpected way, you know, you're doing it wrong. You know, so it, it, I, can, I can see that happening here as well. I mean, a lot of this stuff as well, I think is with, with, 
it, it, it's, it's strange things we've talked about like from my perspective there are things I've brought into my karate uh, but there are also things that karate picked up that I've rejected and there are also things that karate lost that I've gone back and picked back up so um, if you could maybe just talk a little bit about the Aikido history and some of the, the, sure. the myths and confusions that, that you feel have, have developed because I, I think untangling that was one of the most useful things I did for my karate because I, got, I understand what this is now and I understand why it's the way it is. So I, I'm sure Aikido must have the same kind of things where it's picked up some interesting historical baggage along the way. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, first of all, it's important to remember that it's not that old an art. It's only about 100 years old, right? Mm. Um it's the first one of the big misconceptions that I come across is that people assume that Japanese martial arts in general are sort of samurai battlefield arts. And then late 19th century, you start getting the modern arts like judo and aikido and these things. Right. And then, you know, those are the two things that exist. So everything before that is sort of badass battlefield samurai. <laughs> That's really not how it happened. That that was Warring States period. That was a few hundred years ago. They've kept evolving over those hundreds of years. So the precursor style of Aikido, the main precursor style of Aikido, which is Daitoryu, uh, is already a highly formalized system. It already had hundreds of name techniques. It was practiced in a more similar fashion to what you would expect, you know, what you would think of as a martial artist nowadays. Right? People did fight with it because the times were rougher. But it was already a formalized system. It's not like this changed with Aikido specifically. Hmm. Um, the, the, big, the big thing that is difficult to untangle with Aikido is that the, the culture of it is so focused on the figure of the founder. You know, Morihei Ushiba, we call a sensei, and he's become this kind of Yoda-like figure, you know, this peaceful martial artist, and etc., etc. And if you actually read first-hand accounts of his students, if you read some of the biographies, you get a very different picture, you know, and it's difficult because there's agendas with a lot of this stuff, right? People who write these biographies of important figures, sometimes they're people who've, you know, proverbially drunk the Kool-Aid, mm. right? There's one I have where it's every myth that has ever been told about him is presented as if it was real. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is like he defeated seven black belts from other martial arts simultaneously well, chances are he was doing a demonstration with seven of his students who happened to have black belts in other arts. <laughs> this is what I, I, I don't know for sure, but I, that sounds more realistic to me. Yeah, it sounds more plausible. Yeah, yeah. But so there's, um, so yeah, I mean, there's before the war, the culture in Japan was quite different. So the martial arts were also different, right? There is, um, there is a lot more of a sort of martial spirit. The whole idea of peace within Aikido was a lot more peace through essentially the Japanese emperor being in charge of everything. Hmm. You know, um, Aikido and the founder were quite closely involved with what can only be called ultranationalist groups. You know, there's, uh, they got a lot of funding from that. So th this doesn't necessarily fit with the modern narrative so much. That really. So my, um, I've studied a few different karate styles and trained a few different instructors. But my core background was in uh, Wadaru. Um, um, so the uh, just what you're saying there. So the wa of Wado, uh, people will say, you know, what does that mean? It means all the peaceful way. And the, the badge typically has a dove and a fist on it. Because the character wa can also mean like in the Japanese style of. And and and, and it, it, if you read um, so like the original title, let's go. Want to give the art that that wa originally it clearly meant in the Japanese, the Japanese way of karate. Uh, same thing. It's feeding into that that nationalistic sentiment. You know. Then after the war, they're lucky enough that they can fudge it. And actually, I won't name names because it wouldn't be fair. But I actually, talked to a student, a direct student of Utsuka's, mm -hmm. who told me he says he says oh before the world and so in in. Pretty good English, but nevertheless, whenever I imagine him saying it, I, I it, it, it was he said before Second World War things Japanese very good, after Second World War things Japanese not so good. Mm -hmm. Explaining why that name shift happened, you see. So there's yeah. almost that, that reinvention of um, you know, which I understand. I mean, everything does it right. I mean, everything has to fit with the zeitgeist of the times. If you want yeah. something to be popular, the things that are going to be popular, the things that do that. So, so you're saying that the, the wars that 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 with Aikido too. So it was later after the war that this peaceful, harmonious element gets gets 
pushed a little bit more because it because it, it fits with the cultural narrative. Would that would that am I am I picking up that up correctly? Um, yeah, mostly. I I the the one thing I would say is that there's this, especially if you read online discussions of Aikido, which I don't recommend you do. You know, unless you want to get some popcorn and enjoy and have fun. Um, there's this idea that it was like this very martial art before the war, and then afterwards it's just spiritual development and personal development. And that's if you read um, any of the actual writings from the time, that's not accurate. Yeah. Um, so what what did change, and as you say, it's probably the same thing with Vado, is Japanese culture as a whole changed. Hmm. And so the these ideas of peace were there before. If you read um, Osensei's writings from the 30s, he a lot of the spiritual stuff was in there. I mean, the... The slightly nutty religion that he hooked up with, that was in the 20s. That was not yeah. post-war. You know, he, he got these ideas earlier. Um, uh, but uh, what changed is how those were interpreted. Yeah. Yeah, right. no, the, the, yeah, exactly. So again, I can I can see that with the the karate as well. If you look at the pre-war and post-war writings and things, it's like a shift in emphasis more than like a wholesale light switch type flip, isn't it? You know. Absolutely. And then yeah. later on with Aikido, what you also get is as it was being proliferated, because that was quite a deliberate process. They were sending people to other countries to, to spread the art. Um, they discovered that, you know, art of peace is kind of a free marketing niche in the martial arts, right? Because if everybody is saying, oh, we're, you know, brutal fighting style, etc., etc., well, maybe the people who are not looking for that, we can sell it as art of peace, mm. right? So that's become, I think that has become much, much more prominent over time because it makes for a good niche and that has some benefits. I mean, I, um, one thing I always say why I like, because people ask me, why do you even want to do self-defense with an Aikido? Why don't you just do that separately? And it's like, well, one of the reasons is because Aikido gets more of the people coming in through the door who might actually need self-defense. You know, people who are in groups who are at higher risk of being attacked are not necessarily the people who are going to walk into, you know, Kyokushin Kai Karate, mm. right? For example, um, because, you know, young, fit men who like to fight are not on the target list for a lot of violent crimes. They, they do experience a lot of violence, mostly social violence, but, you know, the target list for sexual assaults, for muggings, for these things, it's not really on there. We tend to get more of the people who might be a little bit meeker. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really good point. Because one of the things, um, I, I joke about this at seminars from time to time, you, you do get um, groups um, who will claim how functional they are and point to their own students. But it's not that the methods they're teaching are particularly effective. What they've developed is a method of selection. Yeah. So when people walk through the door, it's like, okay, put the gloves on because, you know, we train full contact from day one because it's full contact in the street. We don't have mats down because you don't have mats in the street. You know, I mean, you could get attacked tomorrow, so we're, not, we're going to get you ready now. And then all that happens is the people who are most likely to need the help leave because they're horrified by what they go through and the person who goes yeah this is for me never needed help anyway so they haven't created a method of developing competent people they've found a method of rejecting those who aren't immediately competent you know so i hadn't thought about it on an art basis before but but I think you can be right. I, I, I think probably, and, 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 and I'm sure, as you know, The Walking Dead <laughs> may have had an influence on this because you had a very high profile profile character yes. in that series and the spin-off series who made a big part of the peaceful part of Aikido. Um, so maybe, just as in Karate Kid influence who took up karate during the 1980s, maybe again you've got that 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 that, that cultural perception that Aikido is more gentle and therefore you won't have the same thing that's off-put if everyone who looks to be training in there has got broken noses and cauliflower ears. I hadn't thought about that from an art-based point of view, but you're right, and therefore that makes sense to, to teach the self-protection within their Aikido framework because you are going to get people coming to that who are probably, as you say, very much in need of those skills. That's why they're coming there. Yeah. I guess the flip side would be the danger is they go to an Aikido group that doesn't teach that that they're attracted to for the for the same reasons. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that there are there are in my opinion there are two approaches that are valid. Approach one is you actually teach the self-defense skills solidly within Aikido and that includes, you know, the soft skills. You have to give people information, you have to practice escape, you have to practice verbal skills, all that stuff, right? Mm. Um 
or you make it very clear to people that this is not what you're doing. Yep. And that's, for example, um, my instructor used to teach traditional Aikido and he would every once in a while sit the students down, point at the mirror at the back of the dojo and go like, okay, if this is self-defense, like this part is avoidance, this part is awareness, this part is verbal de-escalation, this little part in the middle is physical skills, and this little tiny part of it here is what I'm teaching you. Yeah. You know, go get the other stuff elsewhere. Um, so I think those are the two approaches that are valid. I think there's absolutely a danger of people. I mean, you do get this in Aikido a lot where people who they want to learn martial arts and they want to learn how to fight, but they're actually afraid to fight and they come to an art where they feel they won't have to. Yeah. You know, which I think is completely fair enough. But then your job as an instructor is to build them up to where they actually can and they do get that experience. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, yeah, that's it. You, you, I always say you judge a method by what it can do for your least natural student, not what it can do for your most natural student. Yeah. And, and, and throwing them in at the deep end, isn't it? You know, it needs to be gentle and gradual over time. You know, we, we have that. We do. We have beginners doing live practice, but it's very, very gentle, very basic practice. So when they've gained confidence with that, we then move them on to the next level. I always remember Dan Anderson, who's like an American karate champion, in a conversation he said. Uh, he said that most people teach sparring in the same way that the Romans taught the Christians to deal with lions. <laughs> and also, yeah, it's a really good yeah. line. They don't teach it. And it goes back to what you're saying before about pressure testing as opposed to pressure training. Yeah. They just throw people in and you sink or you swim. Yeah. And, and then they get, what, what, what do people learn? Yeah, you know, I'm terrified. I knew I wouldn't be good at this. They leave and they never come back. So that, I, I, I can see a lot of parallels in that there as well. So, yeah, that's, 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 that's really interesting on the historical um point of view too so we obviously in the karate we use the term 3k where we talk about kata kion and kumite and never the three shall meet where you've got this 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 art that um, that evolved from a fighting system but has now developed its own internal objectives and agendas we do basics to get good at basics kata to get good at kata and the kumite tends to be based on sport rules and no one ever contextualizes it so i, I guess within aikido you must have a similar um 3k version of the art oh absolutely i mean um within aikido i think a lot of it is things that are just movement systems you know just cooperative movement systems where people they talk about spiritual development a lot for me personally the spiritual development the self-defense side they're not separate mm. you know you the reason martial arts are good for personal development is because you do things with your body that represent those principles that you're trying to learn and you learn it that way right if you're trying to learn resilience, you do things that are difficult. If you're trying to learn to be more peaceful and respond more peacefully to aggression, you practice that physically in training. Um, and, you know, if people show up who need self-defense, some people, like we said before, they just need the physical skills. A lot of people need personal development work to be able to defend themselves. For some people, even the idea of I'm worth defending is a stretch goal. It's not a baseline, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think within Aikido, what you get is you get these, it's not quite 3K because we don't have um, those things the same way, but it presents the same kind of the same niche of people just go and they learn these very particular movements and, you know, you do them for the gradings and for the approval of the instructor rather than are you moving well, are you moving right? You know, what, one of the worst examples I've seen is I had a, an instructor um, teaching a course, I'm not going to name names or even styles, but he was... Um, was showing a basic, you know, S-shaped wrist lock, and he was explaining that the only way to do it is to lift your hand over your head and then bring it down. And I was going, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Why is that? And then later on, I realized that the reason it was like this is because when you're trying to grade a room of 20, 30 people at the same time, this way you can see that they're sort of doing the shape of the lock. You know, but it has nothing to do with application anymore. And so you start getting these kind of, I guess, <laughs> the, where it's really similar is that they're self-perpetuating systems that can't really interact with anything outside of themselves anymore. Yeah, that's it. Does it, that it, it becomes. It does. I, I, I call it well artificial success criteria. Yes. yes. So, so instead of saying you know this, it's, this is this is good because it works. They insert other things. This is good because we say it's good. The example that kept in mind there, the parallel is karate stances, mm -hmm. which are supposed to be snapshots of movement that show you the posture you should assume and immediately move on from in order to have your weight distribution correct at that point. 
And then, of course, what happens is, um, you know, and it's fair enough to say to the student, okay, let's isolate that movement, the, 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 this position, that's where you need to be. Then when you've got large groups, you're teaching large groups of people, you get people to freeze frame all the time because you can check everybody. So if, you, if you're watching, if, if a student is watching 70 people do karate key on a kata, he can't watch 70 but what he can do is say, okay, everyone move now. He can see a couple, then he can stop, and he can check the end position of everyone else. And, and, and based on the limitations of what he can see, that could be a reasonable indication that they all moved okay because they've all ended up in the right position. It's not guaranteed. But then what happens over time is the, the, the position becomes the objective, not how you got into that position. So the, the way in which it's taught and the need for large classes sees the car put before the horse a little bit. So I can see that, that the parallel there, you know, it's, it's, it's done for convenience of teaching rather than actual, you know, efficacy of movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what, what I found is that, because um, you can get the same issue <coughs> happening if you introduce self-defense to the practice, right? Because um, when I started, I was teaching the self-defense a little bit separately. You know, it was like Aikido, and then we do a part of the class that's self-defense. And what can happen with that is that, again, you have two things that don't really meet. Mm. Um, so what I started doing was we would do, like, one part self-defense, one part Aikido, one part how does the Aikido relate? How do the physical skills help you? How do those principles express? Um, what I like to do, I, I like Rory's method, Rory Miller's method of principles-based teaching. Mm -hmm. And I like to do that first. So, for example, if I'm teaching, let's, again, use the joint locks example of... You know, I like to teach, okay, this is how the joints work. These are principles of leverage. This is how that goes. Now, here are the techniques which are expressions of those principles. And that kind of forces you to not have the shape of the technique be the end goal. You know, this artificial yep. criterion. Because students that understand what they're doing, you know, combined with context, they didn't really understand what they're doing. They can self-correct. You know, because if you're, okay, it's not working. And instead of going, well, you know, move your arm like this, go... Okay, do you have the right bend and twist? How's your leverage? You know, and then if that doesn't work, you can help them adjust. But this way, I think you keep things very grounded in the context and in the physical principles that make it all work. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, hundred uh, percent. The 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 idea that princ principles are what matters. The technique is just an illustration of that principle. Yep. Uh, and and again, I think what happens is people do they collect a lot of techniques and then they 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 struggle. Um, to apply them all because they're not able to adapt because they're not acting in accord with the principles. Yeah, and I have this a lot. You know, I, for my four-stage model of karate, I always say, you know, the, the, if you're talking about the kata, you know, the, the, and stages in retrospect is probably the wrong word because all four of these things are generally happening at once and feeding into each other. But if I have to put them in order, is people will learn the form, they'll learn the applications, and they will identify the underlying principles so they can adapt and vary, and then they gain live experience of it. And when I explain this to people, the common one is, no, I get all of that, but can you show me a principle? I, no, I can't. I can I can explain one, and I can show you techniques that manifest that principle. But principles are slightly ethereal, and I've had that when I've saying, no, here's a principle. Let me show you in action. Here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. I'll go. Oh, I see those three techniques. But could you show me the principle? So you know what I mean. So I, I, I think. Did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, but I understand that some people struggle with that thinking. Yeah. Normally, those if they've been educated in a, in, a, in a technical way, where the technique becomes the objective, and that and they misunderstand that the technique is an illustration of a concept, an idea which you need to internalize and act in accordance with. You see, and everyone I know, I mean, um. It's probably because I respond to that form of instruction, but that principle-based learning, all of my karate instructors have taught that way. My judo instructor taught that way. I mean, everyone that I I admire, and Roy is brilliant at this. I, I think he's, he's brilliant at taking what on the surface can seem very complex and vast subjects and, and reducing it down to digestible core ideas without making it i always like the einstein quote for that we should make it as simple as possible but no simpler you know so sometimes people try and make it so simple that it, it's now useless you know the the, the missing the point with it but our principle-based learning is massive so i mean if you can maybe just describe one of those and like a key a key principle that Oh, if we relate it to joint locking yeah just so people if they're listening and they're not getting what we're talking about just to give them a concrete example Sure. So um, let's say, so I'm, I'm just going to take this basic wrist lock, which is something that we teach quite a lot, right? Um, you know, you have all these ways of locking the wrist, but really it can only move in particular ways. 
you can bend it or you can twist it, mm -hmm. right? So if you teach people that for this lock, you're trying to get the bend and twist, you teach the idea of leverage. So the longer you lever on, the more power you get. And you teach the idea of, um, so most of our techniques, and this kind of ties into what you were saying earlier with karate, you're trying to get percussive strikes to the head. Um, we're trying to control the spine. So mm -hmm. everything is in service to controlling the spine, right? Or, you know, taking out the head. Um, so if you teach the way that um, structure works from the joint to the spine and you can show them how that moves and how balance works, you know, and that's a number of principles. I know if I had to pick one, let me say balance, right? Your center of gravity moves outside of your base, you fall over. <laughs> that, that's how that works, right? Depending yeah, on yeah. how you're standing... It applies slightly differently, but so for example, if I do if I do lock up your joint, I want to see that your spine is moving past, and I then want to turn in such a way that it takes your center out of um, out of from over your base, right? So if I teach that principle, when someone does the technique and it's not working, we can then let them figure out the solution by saying which part of that is not happening. You know, is it the lock that's not happening? Is it the structure that's not happening? Are you not of balancing them? And they can find it and that it, it creates almost a natural learning environment. You know, there's a, um, there's a book that I will actually recommend. Uh, I don't know if you've come across it called The Language of Coaching. No, I haven't. No. It's, it's uh, by uh, Nick Winkleman. He's uh, uh, teaches of Irish rugby. It's a brilliant, brilliant book on coaching. I highly recommend it. And he's got stuff in there about natural learning environments. And, you know, if you give people enough contextualization with these principles to be able to self-correct, you almost have that and the learning is so much better. Yeah, love that. Really love it. The, the bit I laugh about is that's exactly when I start teach throwing, that's exactly what I tell them. The, the whole point is you take the center of gravity outside the base in such a way they can't readjust their base. Yeah. And, and then we'll talk about how we'll make sure they can't readjust the base. Mm -hmm. you know, but, but you've got that golden rule principle. And like, like what tactical positioning, keep the enemy in front of you, do not be in front of the enemy. Move towards what you know, away from what you don't know. We're always trying to boil it back to these things. Uh, and then again, when, when it doesn't work, it's exactly the same thing. I say, look, you've violated that principle. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that rule. Um, yeah, and I, I, I remember I had a similar conversation with this with, with Wim Demir and it's really you know he, Wim comes from obviously Chinese systems you've got an Aikido background I've got a karate background but you know um, but it all comes down to those common threads and principles and, and I think to be honest is one of the things that differentiates the art really is which principles they emphasize the most you know but nevertheless I think those principles are common to all of them I once had that described like a musical theory I don't know if this is true but the, the guy I was talking to he's a good at music but he said he goes he says all music from motorhead to mozart is essentially based on the same ideas you know and he says what what determines the musical style is which elements it chooses to to emphasize mm -hmm. you know and i always thought it's not a bad analogy for martial arts you know yeah very interesting stuff so uh, is there anything else that you think we, we haven't touched upon anything that you think is important for people to listen because i mean i understand when we could talk about this for hours and we'll, we'll have to have a, a follow-up conversation but for, for, for me um as a non-aikido there's quite a lot in this that i that i found quite interesting and that i can relate to and, and there's a couple of misconceptions i had that you, you've corrected so i just wonder if there's anything else that you feel we've, we've not touched upon as a an um, introduction well, like you said, there's a lot, but I, there, there are two things that I, I want to mention. They both relate to the historical stuff, because I was thinking of mentioning at the time when we kind of moved past it. Uh, one, and you will love this, if you read the founder of Aikido's um, 1930s writing, his tactical advice, you know, because Aikido often has this image of a complicated martial art, his tactical advice largely in, means get behind them and drop them, or if you're going to hit them, hit them really, really hard. <laughs> this is if you get past you know the flowery language and the, the spiritual components of it that is the core tactical advice yeah right um one thing i want to mention i think this ties with the you know why sometimes people have trouble with the principles-based learning is because we have this cultural idea in the martial arts that what we need to do is copy the things that people before us did as closely as possible Mm. Um, which that's not bad advice, especially when you're starting, but you need to actually understand what they were doing and why. And I think, I mean, I, I'm within karate. My favorite misconception of this is, you know, when people talk about, well, it used to be that you spent an entire year just learning one kata. It's like, yes, but 
not just the solo form. Like people take that very seriously <laughs> and they think it was just the solo form. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and within Aikido, I mean, a lot of these criticisms and problems, they're not new. Like there's a lot of, I, I don't know if you get the same thing in karate. There's a lot of sort of good old deism with some people. Oh, back in my day, we used to train really. Ha, ha, ha. But if you read the first hand accounts, Back then, you know, one of the high-ranking instructors in Japan at a meeting said, look, can we please stop showing sword disarms in our demos? There are people in the audience who do actual sword arts, and it's embarrassing. <laughs> you know, th these are these, there were back then instructors were like, oh, I don't think these other people know how to fight. And th this was, it was the same thing. It wasn't that different. You know, that there's not a case of we don't need to idolize the past. We should learn from it. We should take what was really good on it, but we should make sure that things work for us in the context that we and our students really need. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it, it, it's um, well, again, there's a Funakoshi line, you know, Funakoshi, the father of modern karate. The world's changes, and obviously the martial arts must too. And then he goes on to say, he goes, the karate that's taught today is is the same. Uh, the karate that's taught to high school students today is not the same as the karate of ten years ago, and is a long way indeed from the karate I learned as a child in Okinawa. It's it's always been evolving and and, and changing, and I, and I find it strange that people think it should stop. There's no other field of human endeavor that thinks they reach perfection in the 1940s. <laughs> There's none. You know, I, I, I think we're doing them a disservice. The, the analogy I always like to use is that of science. So, so, for, so as a layman, you know, I, I know that the physics of Newton has since been built upon, you know, that they acknowledge that the, the physics that he had, although pretty good to all intents and purposes, wasn't complete uh, and things have moved on since there. But no one looks back at Newton and goes, idiot, he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and the, the physicists that we have today, they don't start from scratch. They, they learn what came before. And then they try and push it forwards. They try and improve it. So the next generation has even more knowledge. And I think that there's an obligation on us as martial artists to do the same. I, I think the old masters would be so disappointed if they were to come back and find what you're doing exactly what we did. You, you've had this thing on your own for 50 years and you haven't made a single change. It hasn't improved one little bit. What have you been doing for 50 years? Well, you know, I, so I, I said, you know, uh, there, there's a book where um, someone talks about the, the dojo saying, you know, oh, our warm-up hasn't changed in 50 years. And as my instructor said, that's not a brag, that's a warning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I would 100% agree on that. I'm, I'm not one of the people who thinks that, you know, Aikido as a whole needs to go through these massive changes. I think that there just needs to be space for people to do the things that have value to them. You know, even if that looks a little bit different than what, um, what is currently being done in the big organizations, you know. I think there are plenty of people who get a lot of value out of just doing the traditional practice. I think there needs to be a little bit more clarity and honesty about what that is and isn't and space for individual expressions. Yeah, 100%. Well, that, that's why when I did the, the, the Marshall map thing, which has probably been one of my most useful contributions, I think people seem to like that, but that was the point of that is it's non-judgmental. It, it doesn't say that this is good or bad. It's always a matter of appropriate or inappropriate. Uh, and in my own practice, I know I do things that have no relevance to self-defense. I'm doing them because I like for the good for consensual fighting, or I'm doing it because I just think it's cool. You know, but, but, but in all cases, I try and label it as what it is. And I think if people are doing that, then more power to them. What, what, what I do know a, a karate instructor, she's really good, really good, who, who is an excellent kata instructor. But that's what she teaches. She teaches it as movement and art. Mm -hmm. So if people went to her and said, you know, how do I apply this? I don't care. It's not my objective. Hmm. And, and, and for her, I, I have a lot more respect from her than the guy who teaches in a confused and, and muddled way. So, yeah, fascinating. I, I love all this stuff. I just love... The, the parallels I always think are interesting. Yeah. Just the, the, the you know the historically and and, and practically, uh, it's always fascinating to me. You see, and and, and uh, because of the nature of the art I do, I, obviously I interact a fair bit with Tang Soo Do practitioners, Taekwondo practitioners, because the, there's commonalities in the way the arts work. But um, not so much with Aikido, which is why I found this conversation so so interesting, and I'm I'm sure the listeners will too. Hopefully. So, so uh, where, where will, if people want to know more, um, you tell them about your, your, your website and stuff so people know where to find you. Uh, sure. So it's harmandharmony.com is the website, and that kind of links to everything else. I'm putting up a Patreon right now. There's been a little bit of a delay on that, but um, so you can find there, and that's mostly going to be on doing self-defense within traditional arts. Uh, the website, you can find a couple of articles um, 
and things. Mostly, I want to this idea that you know self defense and the personal development are not separate is what I'm really focusing on. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot of self defense that is an emotional, spiritual, or mental skill, depending on how you look at that. And yeah, basically, you can find everything through the website, seminars as well. You know, and yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for uh, for, for for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me in. This was really fun. My, my pleasure. My pleasure. Th- thanks now. So on behalf of Dan and myself, I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. Dan's definitely someone uh, I want to talk to to more, and I'm, I'm sure you'd be interested in, in listening to further conversations. So thank you to Dan for being part of that. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with more very soon. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.